All right, guys, welcome back to Revive School. You made it. I mean, Kevin, this is kind of a big deal. Twelve books. Twelve historical books. And here we are at the end of Esther. Really, it's not for a couple of books. Like, this is some of the last stuff that you're going to find in all of the Old Testament. Now, I know you have some minor prophets. We're going to get to that stuff. But historically, this is some of the later stuff that you'll find in all of the Old Testament. So, We've been talking about Esther, and when you think of Esther, you think of a beautiful woman, you think of a, you know, a beauty pageant, not really, but all these women come together, kind of forced, kind of not, and the king decides to choose one, and, and then Esther's in a place that she could actually be used for such a time as this to save the Jewish people. But the part that I have to be honest, as I, as I study this more and more and more, it's Mordecai is the one that's pointing to the coming king. Mordecai is the despised one, the Jew that Haman the Agagite can't stand. And because of that, he issues a decree through the king. Hey, we're going to wipe out all of the Jews. But God uses Mordecai and his friendship and his relationship with his cousin Esther. And the next thing you know, there's a second decree. After Haman is killed and dead, he's hung on his own gallows that he actually made himself. And there's a second decree that's gone out. And that's where we left off yesterday in Esther 8. That even though there is the despised one, right, Haman... God now used the despised one to, to save his people. It's probably one of the coolest stories of how it went, goes like from this to this. Like he just flips it, like instantly just flips it. And that's what I love about this story is even though the despised one has a weird title, God used the despised one, you guys, to actually save the people. And I, I want to go to 1 Corinthians 1, 28 through 31 just one more time because I think this is really important to have this picture of how Mordecai is being used says, God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. Haman just thought he was a worthless Jew. He didn't even care for him. What is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. Verse 29, so that no one can boast in his presence. It's not about him. It's all about the Lord. In verse 30 and 31, but it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became God-given wisdom for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Verse 31, in order that as it, it is written, the one who boasts should boast in the Lord. God loves to use those that are insignificant. <laughs> those that seem to be nothing. Sure sounds like the guys in, you know, uh, in Acts 10 and 11, when he used the men of Cyprus and Cyrene, right, to advance the kingdom of God. God loves to use the Hathaks, the ones that are going between the Esthers and the Mordecais. He loves to use the lad that's bringing the fish and, and the loaves. He loves to use the guys that are helping save Paul come down from a basket. He loves to use the no-namers because God gets the glory and all that. And so I actually really love the title, Despised One. I know it doesn't always fit with Mindy's painting right here, but in my opinion, God used Esther, God used Mordecai, the despised one, to radically save the people. And here's the deal. They know that D-Day is coming because the decree has been issued, the first one. Now the second decree has been issued. Hey, by the way, you guys, you can, and I love what Constable says, the Jews were now given permission to defend themselves by killing their enemies, and also, don't be afraid to initiate action. <laughs> and so that's what you see. The Jews become what we would see here. And Marvin, I got a new commentator for you guys. 
Marvin Brenneman, okay, Marvin Brenneman, he just paints a real simple picture here in the first four verses. The Jews become united. This is as they're in exile, right? They're, they're given this decree. They're, they're in the providences of... They're coming back. Yes. So they're not in captivity anymore. So here you have the, the time period of... I mean, it's a yes and no. Zerubbabel's crew came first, Esther's in between, and then you have the second crew that makes a wave. So they're sandwiched right in between the captivities of them both coming back. So in that extent, Kevin, you're right. I mean, they're, they're, they're in Persia, right? I mean, that's, that's the reality. So uh, to, to much of what you're saying, yeah. You know, but they're going to be unified in that environment. So it's a great point. Uh, all right, let's keep going here if we can. So in verse 1, it says this, The king's command and law went into effect. Remember, the couriers are taking out the good news. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar, on the day when the Jews, the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. So remember, the D-Day that they've all been waiting for. Hey, by the way, we can now kill the Jews. Wait, what? Just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. Why? This is a cool picture here because the Jews had a better weapon. The Jewish people clearly had a better weapon. Can you go to uh, Esther 8 1 for me, Kevin? 8 17, excuse me. And here was their weapon. It says at the very bottom, it says there was a celebration and a holiday, and many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews. Look at this because fear of the Jews had overcome them. One of the best weapons that the Jewish people were actually given is that people were actually afraid of them. And we know this because if you go to verse 2 of Esther 9-2, it's the same concept. In each of the king of Hazarius's provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Look at this. Terror of them fell on every nationality. So the best weapon, one of them, that the Jewish people had was is everybody was afraid of them. And they didn't do a thing. God created this fear in all of these nationalities to be afraid of the people that they were getting ready to attack and kill. <laughs> Can you go to Jeremiah 30, verse 16 for me, please? Jeremiah 30, verse 16. This is kind of a cool thing. It says, Nevertheless, all who devoured you will be devoured, and all your adversaries, all of them, will go off into exile. Your despoilers will become spoil, and all who plunder you will be plundered. Like, this is what's happening. Everybody who was getting ready to, yes, plunder the Jews, guess what happened? They got plundered. Now, we're going to read that actually they, they didn't get their spoils. So that in some sense, this isn't fully true in applying this. But my point is, is that all the people that are coming to kill, God's already got to take care of. In fact, when you think about the story in Genesis 35, 5, Jacob, he's traveling from Shechem to Bethlehem, uh, to Bethel. It says, when they set out, a terror from God came over the cities around them and they didn't pursue Jacob's sons. It was like God instilled in other people fear over those people. And it's just a cool, like maybe a simple way to pray is God make them afraid of me. <laughs> God make them afraid of our team. Same thing happens in Deuteronomy 2.25. If you'll go there, Kevin. The fear of the Israelites happened again in Deuteronomy 2.25. Scripture says today... I will begin to put the fear and dread of you on the peoples everywhere under heaven. They'll hear the report about you tremble and be in anguish because of you. So the fear of the Jews comes from who? God. God. 
God is the one that's actually taking over. This is God's game plan. Oh, yeah, I'm going to make them a bunch of scaredy cats. Again, Israelites walking this thing out. God creates fear in man. And then the last one in Joshua 9, verse 24. In Joshua 9, verse 24. Says the Gibeonites answered him. It was clearly communicated to your servants that the Lord your God has com- had commanded his servant Moses to give you all of the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. We greatly feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. Remember, they got all nervous and got all scared, and over and over and over. So, if you uh, function this way, I think it's fair to say. There's just truly, I think what's happened is, is people have just lost this component of the fear of God today. Now, obviously, they're fearing the Israelites in this context. And, you know, maybe I'll come back to this here in a little bit. Why don't I come back to this? I I just think it's a cool picture. I think it's a really cool picture about these people simply were afraid of the Israelites. Verse 3. I'm back in Esther 9, verse 3. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the royal civil administrators aided the Jews because... (laughs) Now it says they were afraid of of Mordecai. So in this process of the Jews being united and strengthened, they're afraid of of the Jews. And then it also just says, I mean, when's the last time you've heard a phrase like this? They were afraid of fear of Mordecai. All right, Rich, Kevin, Tom, somebody. Why, Why do you think, why are they afraid of Mordecai? He's wearing the king's signet ring. He can do whatever he wants pretty much. So his power is there. And so what do they think he's going to do? Wipe him out. Well, he's because he has the power and they were focused on them as Jews, he's like, they're worried about retaliation a little bit. Verse 4 totally confirms what you guys just said. For Mordecai exercised great power in the palace and his fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. When you guys picture Mordecai, what, what do you really picture? Do you picture this side of Mordecai? I never picture this side of Mordecai. In fact, I picture the opposite side of the guy sitting down, leaning up against the gate, you know, crying, mourning, weeping, fasting, interceding on behalf of Esther like he's doing everything he can. In fact, here's what I love about, um, like we have what we would call modern day M- M- Mordecais at our ministry. And I did this because of these guys, not because of uh, their fame spreading or the great power but because I've asked people to actually walk alongside and provide counsel and insight, and I asked them to adopt me. <laughs> That's really what I did. I asked Mordecai to adopt me. Everyday people here in the United States that you know either have businesses or they're you know they're a, a, a mom or a dad or they love the Lord. Like they're all kinds of qualifiers, right? <laughs> and what I love is is that I know I can count on them for praying. I know that I can count on them pressing in and interceding and giving me advice when I need it. Like, to me, that's what I picture. So now all of a sudden I have this flip of the despised one now becoming, this is why I love how I believe the despised one now becomes the powerful one. It's an incredible picture, you guys, of of Christ himself. They rejected him, but as he got rejected, then he walked into his his victory. Christ walked into his role. I, I just think there's a really fun layer here. That a lot of times, and I'm just going to say this, we picture Jesus um, on the cross still, don't we? We picture Christ in, as, as this man who came and died for us, but it's like he's still there. C- can I just tell you in 1 Corinthians 15, let's go there, Kevin, 1 Corinthians 15, 54, he, he's not there anymore, you guys. 
And in fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 54, and this is a great picture of the switch from the despised one to the powerful one. It just says this, when this corruptible is clothed, clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Verse 55. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? And then in verse 56. Now the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Like Christ, while he was here on earth, he got mocked, he got scourged, he got spit on, he got uh, persecuted. And now all of a sudden you can say, look at, at the King Jesus, who was the despised one, who's now the victorious one. In some weird way, you guys, and you, you might think this is a weird stretch, but I've always pictured Mordecai as this humble guy that, yeah, he's going to get things done. But man, if you go back, Kevin, to Esther 9, and you see this description, you see this picture of he's exercising great power in the palace that he's been given and his, fr- his fame spread throughout the provinces. It's kind of like, wow, this is an incredible picture of the coming king. It's an incredible picture. Think about Christ. Whenever he went around all over, wherever he went, what does it do? Everything spread. His word spread. His word spread. His word just spread. And the next thing you know, you see the Jews, they're united and strengthened. And because the fear of the Jews took over and so did the fear of of Mordecai. When you get into verse 5, a lot of people will say this is kind of like the the major turning point. And in verse 5, what you're going to see is, and this is, uh, what was our buddy's name, Rich? You remember this? Marvin Brenneman, right? Marvin Brenneman describes this section as the Jews' destruction of their enemies. So not only are they united, but when they're united, what do they get to do? They walk out and defeat their enemies. It says in verse 5, the Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. Verse 6, in the fortress of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including, here you go, the 10 sons of Haman. Parshanadatha, Dalphon, Asaphatha, keeps going, Poratha, Adelia, Eridatha, Parmashat, Parmashta, Erisai, Aradai, and Visatha. What do you know? They killed these ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadiatha, the enemy of the Jews. Okay, this is kind of a big statement, but I think it's really obvious. When the Jews become united, they defeat their enemy. They're not fighting against each other. Do you notice that? They're not fighting and killing each other. What are they doing? They're defending and fighting the enemy. Don't you think that's what the church should be doing? Don't you think the church should stop fighting against Methodists and Baptists and Charismatics and Bible-believing people and Spirit-filled people? Like, can we just stop turning against each other and for once realize the enemy is not the church building down the street? Seems foolish, doesn't it? Hey, yeah, we're going to build the, for 52 days the walls. Let's start killing each other. Now, there's a bigger picture here. And that's what I love about Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. It's all about a bigger picture. And you know what it is? It's about saving their rear ends and wiping off the enemies. And I, I think it's a cool picture of how when the Jews came together, when there's unity in the spirit, <laughs> the enemy is defeated. 
Interesting enough, in verse 10, <laughs> this is going to sound like I jumped off a cliff. It says, however, they did not seize any plunder. I think this is kind of cool because you remember when Saul with the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, verse 23. Can we go there, Kevin? I think they actually learned something. Remember the Amalekites, the Agagites? Remember all these, this, this, these people groups, how they intertwine? It says in 1 Samuel 15, verse 17. Uh, Kevin, if you'll go there. Verse 17, Samuel continued, Although you once considered yourself unimportant, have you not become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over, over Israel. So he's talking to Saul here. And then he sent you on a mission. And he said, go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you've annihilated them. Verse 19, so why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? Verse 20, but I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on the mission of the Lord gave me. I brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. Verse 21, the troops took sheep and cattle from the plunder and the best of what was set apart for destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Verse 22, then Samuel says, did the Lord take pleasure in burnt offering and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. In verse 23, for rebellion is like the sin of divination and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. Man, this is a crazy comparison here. Because in my opinion, here they are, what? They are interacting with the descendants of the Amalekites. They're interacting with these descendants and they kill the ten sons and they don't touch the plunder. I, I just want to say, praise God, they actually learned something. <laughs> right? You know how many times have we learned? They didn't learn from their history. They didn't understand. So at the end of 12 historical books, somebody learned something. They didn't seize the plunder. Can I just tell you, this is where I'm going to say, it feels like I'm going to jump off a cliff here for a second. I feel like when we're unified and then we, we defeat the enemies, I feel like we're always looking for like, what's in it for me? Like, hey, what can I get out of this? How can I experience the blessing? Man, stop. Just what if it's not about that? What if it's just simply about obeying and listening to the Lord and doing what he's asked you to do? And you never got a reward while you're here. You never got a prosperity uh, anything. Like, would you still do this because God's asked you to do that? And that's what I love about the Jews united. They destroyed the enemies and they didn't get any of the plunder. I love this because it shows to me, hey, praise God, this is actually refreshing, <laughs> really refreshing of self-denial. A guy named Baldwin gives a, a quote here in Constable's commentary. And I, I like this and it just says, the deliberate decision not to enrich themselves at the expense of their enemies would not go unnoticed in a culture where victors were expected to take the spoil. The very novelty of such self-denial would be rewarded upon and remarked upon and remembered. And then as proof of the upright motives of the Jewish communities. Wait, you're going to do this for, for nothing? Yeah, that's right. Um, in fact, I keep going back to certain phone calls. I had another phone call today. and They said, hey, let me get this right. You guys are willing to come and serve us, but we don't have to pay you. Is that right? I said, no, God's just asked us to do this. But just for a split second in my mind, I'll be like, you know, it'd be nice if you could actually help. <laughs> but it doesn't matter because I know what I've been called to. And I love this about this. Is their motives were, were self-denial. 
in some respects. And then it says in verse 11, on that day, and just so you know, three times it says they didn't seize any plunder. In verse 11, on that day, the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa was reported to the king. Scripture says in verse 12, the king said to king, Queen Esther, in the fortress of Susa, the kings, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, including Haman's 10 sons. What have they done in the rest of the royal provinces? Like, hey, can you give me a report? Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek will also be, be done. It says in verse 12, then, or in verse 13, excuse me, Esther answered, If it pleases the king, may the Jews who are in Susa also have tomorrow to carry out today's law. And may the bodies of Haman's ten sons be hung on the gallows. And, and by the way, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to take these 10 bodies. I'd like to hang them on the gallows. And I need another day to keep wiping out people. It sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Esther is not messing around. And I'm actually okay with it. Can you think of another story, you guys, of a dad and a son's both being hung? They're all being hung. Do you remember this story? Can you go to 2 Samuel 21, 12? I just kind of, I'm trying to just tie in a little bit more of the historical books. Just, I, I think there's some visuals here. Here you have Haman, right? But look what happened. Same thing happened to Saul. He went and got the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the leaders of Jabbath Gilead. They had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan where the Philistines took Saul and Jonathan, right? Hung the bodies the day the Philistines killed Saul at Gilboa. So like, there's something about even when people are killed, they want to show all of the enemies, oh yeah, we did this. Esther actually says, I'm going to stick it to them. And I'm going to hang 10 of Haman's sons on the gallows. And then watch as this unfolds in verse, uh, in verse 15, Kevin, if you can. Uh, it says the Jews in Susa assembled again on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa. But they did not seize any plunder. Now in verse 16, here you go, giddy up, holy cow. The rest of the Jews in the royal provinces, they assembled defended themselves, and they got rid of their enemies. So we're moving from the city now onto the, onto the broad. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they didn't seize any plunder. <laughs> what in the world just happened? Well, they fought on the 13th day of the month of Adar and rested on the 14th, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. Okay, so now look, just as important. So the, the provinces in verse 17, they fought for... On the 13th day, and then they rested the 14th day. Does that make sense? They fought one day, rested another. Now, when you go to verse 18, but the Jews in Susa had assembled on the 13th and the 14th, and then they assembled on the 15th. And then that became a day of feasting and rejoicing. You know what this means, right? Somebody's not going to like that one person did it this way and we did it this way, even in-house. So you have to be like, okay, what does this look like? So even though the Jews are unified and strengthened, they're, destruct, they're destroying their enemies. Here's what I love about a good leader. A leader begins to sense that there is dis dissension. And so Mordecai, okay, Mordecai has a letter of instruction. He knows that they already have victory, but he doesn't want to lose his crowd because some are fighting on two days and some are fighting on one day. I know this sounds silly, but isn't this what we do? Oh, no, I, I celebrate on this day, not on this day. What? What are you talking about? So in verse 18, it says, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 19, it says, this explains, okay, why the rural Jews who live in villages observe the 14th day of the month of Adar as a time of rejoicing, it's a holiday when they send gifts to one another. So they observe the 14th day. Now it goes on, okay, in verse 
uh, 20, Mordecai recorded these of, uh, Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all of the Jews and all of King Ahasuerus, I think I've changed that every time, provinces both near and far. But look what he does with the letter of instruction. He wants to keep unity. He doesn't want them to fight. As weird as it sounds over celebrating, he orders them in verse 21 to celebrate on the 14th and the 15th days of Adar. Oh, by the way, guys, this is how we're going to celebrate. No work. It's a weekend. I'm going to institute Purim. Because during those days, the Jews got rid of their enemies. So both days there was fighting. So we're going to institute, this is the time. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and the poor. So here it is. The Jews actually agreed to continue the practice they had begun as Mordecai had written to them. And so what do you know? What do you have? You have... um, The feast is established by the Jews. All because of the letter that went out. And so it says this, and For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, for he, he cast the pure, right? Remember this? Haman cast the pure, that is the lot, to crush and to destroy him. So how did they get to this day? Because he cast the lot and decided this is when it's going to happen. But interesting enough, Proverbs 16.33. Kevin, can you go there? Let's see. I'm, I'm totally going off of memory. <laughs> it's probably not the best. Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So even though Haman cast the lot to, to wipe out the Israelites, that was God's decision to know wipe them out. I think it's just a cool picture. And so here you go. When the matter was brought before the king, he commanded by letter. And what you're going to see is literally a summary of the book of Esther. That this letter that the evil uh, plan Haman had devised against the Jews, it returned on his own head, that he should be hanged with his sons on the gallows. And then in verse 26, here you go. For this reason, these days are called Purim. From the word pure, pur. Because of all the instructions in this letter, as well as what they had witnessed and what had happened to them. Scripture continues on in verse uh, 27. The Jews bound themselves, their descendants, and all who joined with them to the commitments that they would not fail to celebrate these two days each and every year according to the written instructions and according to the time appointed. And it says in verse 28, uh, these days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, family, province, and city so that these days appear and will not lose their significance in Jewish life and their memory will not fade from their descendants. You know, this is still celebrated to today. The Jewish people still celebrate the fact that God used Esther and Mordecai to save the people. And think about it. The couriers went running everywhere and said, guys, this is the day. Don't be discouraged. God's going to flip it around. And he, and he did. He radically flipped this around. What was meant for uh, harm, God turned it into good. And so here you have the book of Esther. When everything looked bad, from the despised one to the destruction, you know what it eventually led to? Deliverance. Deliverance. The despised one 
brought about deliverance for the people of God. And so as you close up in, in Esther 10, there's only, there's only three verses. It's kind of great. I love, I love those kind of chapters, right? But what you see at the end of uh, Esther 10 is that Mordecai is truly just promoted. He's honored. And it all went from because he humbled himself and God lifted him up in due time. Guys, this has been an incredible journey with the 12 historical books, Esther 9 and 10. But really, it's been more than just Esther I hope and pray you've learned a lot. I hope and pray that uh, you take time to go deeper just outside of this classroom time. And Lord willing, remember all of these historical books, all, all of them constantly point to the coming King. All right, guys, have a great day. And guess what? Guess what we get to start? The book of Acts. We'll talk to you later. Thanks. 